12 is where we will begin today, uh, reading God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Well, we're looking at these uh, letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and we are looking at them with a view towards church revitalization. We want to see what the Spirit says to the churches here in Revelation and, and apply it to ourselves so that we can be the kind of church that brings uh, pleasure to the Lord and that brings the, the power of the gospel to bear upon the culture in which we live. We want to see our pews filled with people eager to hear God's word, eager to worship the Lord. And so we turn our attention to God's word here to these churches that were in the middle of persecution in the first century. Uh, they were living under the, the Roman government at the time, which was hostile to Christianity. And we can learn a lot from what we read here. We've already looked at two of the churches in uh, Smyrna and Ephesus and have learned some things about uh, uh, what a vital church looks at. And here today as we travel to Pergamum, we, at least in spirit, we will learn some things about compromise and not being a compromiser. Now, compromise can be a good thing. You know, I was, I was thinking about the word compromise in, in reference to this church and and uh, I looked up the, the Great Compromise, which was uh, an important event in the history of our nation. And that's the reason, because of the Great Compromise, we have the, the Congress and Senate and the division, uh, how it all works in our government. And I'm not a civics uh, person, and, and I'm not going to give you a civics lesson here. You can go look it up. So, but sometimes compromise is a good thing, and that was a good thing for the United States of America and our government. But for the Christian, compromise is not a good thing. It is not a good thing to compromise, especially when we're talking about compromise with the world. And that was a real temptation for the folks in Pergamum. Now today I want to look at four things, make four points from this passage that we've just read about the vital church. The vital church knows it exists in a hostile environment. The vital church holds fast to Jesus and does not deny the faith. The vital church does not compromise with the world and the vital church keeps the future hope in view. And may the Lord 
help us to grasp these things as we think about them so that we can be a vital church in our environment. Well, first, we see something here about the environment of Pergamum. The vital church knows it exists in a hostile environment. Verse 13, Jesus makes this interesting statement about the city of Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's not a commendation for a city, you know. When you drive into a city, sometimes it'll, it'll say the, maybe the theme of the city. You know, uh, I remember we lived uh, for a couple of summers outside of Macon, Georgia. And there's a little town, we, we were in a little town called Forsyth, and, and on the way there's a, there's a, there was a, the town next to it. And on the, on the sign it, it said, uh, home of, of 55 people and one grumpy old guy. What a way for a town to be known. So Pergamum didn't have this, uh, Jesus didn't have a high opinion of Pergamum, obviously. He describes it as a place where Satan's throne is. Now, Pergamum was the capital of the province of Asia. It was a a city that uh, that was serving in an administrative role for the Roman government and that that, uh, was ruling at that time. So it had that administrative function, but more importantly, it was a a very uh, prominent religious center. There were a number of temples to various gods, notably one god called Asclepius, and this god was in the form of a snake, and lots of people came to Pergamum because they believed this god had some healing power. And so people flocked to uh, to Pergamum for religious pers- purposes. And there were other, uh, many other temples there to Dionysus, Athena, and right on the, uh, the Acropolis of this city that was built upon terraces was an altar to Zeus. But even more, uh, more religious uh, prominence was placed in Pergamum on not only those gods of the Romans, but upon Caesar. This was the center of Caesar worship. They looked at the, the ruler of Rome as a god, and so, so Pergamum was a center for the imperial cult, Caesar worship. This makes it a difficult place for Christians to live because in order to worship Caesar, you have to say, Caesar is Lord. And of course, Christians wouldn't do that. They would only say that Jesus is Lord. And because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, they face persecution. Now, when Jesus describes Pergamum as a place where Satan's throne is, he means that Satan and, and the forces of evil held particular sway in that city. You could see it all around in the, in the temples and the false worship and the imperial cult. Satan means adversary. And there was much evil activity there in Pergamum that would have opposed and tempted the church there. There was much error being proclaimed as truth in Pergamum. And there uh, was the work of Antichrist, which was much more apparent there than the work of Christ. Now, it's certainly true that there are places in the world where Satan has greater influence. 
It's easier to be wicked in New Orleans than it is to be wicked in Biloxi. It's easier to be wicked in Biloxi than it is to be wicked in Gaucher. But you know what? You, you can be wicked anywhere. But some places have a higher degree of temptation than others. And we see that even in our area. In Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is described there as the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world who will be cast out in John 12. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls Satan the god of this world. And when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, it says there in, in Luke 4. And Satan said to Jesus, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. There's quite a lot of power that Satan has in the world in which we live today. Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12 of his epistle to them, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to be aware that we live, even though we may not be at New Orleans or San Francisco or some other place in the world where there's a lot of temptation, we have our share of it here in Biloxi, but we must be aware that we live in an environment in, just by living in this world where Satan is at work. The forces of evil are at work. There are, are temptations and wickedness all around us, calling to us, tempting us. And the reason that I want to highlight this from this passage is because an American Culture and Faith Institute study found that only 58% of Christians believe that Satan exists. That's shocking. And it's no wonder that uh, that's true, that people don't believe in Satan. Uh, when you see the results of a survey by Lifeway that found only 19% of Christians read the Bible every day. You don't read the Bible, you don't uh, hear these things proclaimed or taught. Uh, if you don't believe the Bible is even God's word, then you can easily throw away this understanding of the world in which we live. But we need to be mindful of the fact that the forces of evil are real, and they're at work in our world. Now, in our battle with temptation, we often uh, stress our battle with our own flesh. You know, we know that we are weak in certain areas, and we, we, we have particular sins that we all struggle with, and, and each one is kind of personal. We, we, we have uh, individual temptations that we're prone to fall into, and we, we may, maybe we condemn ourselves because we're, our flesh is weak in that area. But in temptation, our battle is not only with our flesh, but it is with the devil and this world, with all of its temptations. This is the battle we, we face. These are the enemies we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all of these things are awake. If we're, if we're not aware that we're in this spiritual battle that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, then we're in serious danger. You think about that. If you, you know, to wander on into a battlefield and you don't know your in the middle of a battle that's about to begin, uh, you're, going to get, you're going to get killed if you're just wandering around in a place where there's war going on. So we must be aware and vigilant in these times in which we live, in the environment in which we live. 
And that leads us to the second point I want to make here about this passage. The vital church holds fast to Jesus and does not deny the faith. In verse 13, uh, he makes this point, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. See, the, Christian, the Christians at Pergamum were well aware that they lived in a hostile environment. They had seen it break out physically. There were opposition spiritual forces all around them, and this has broken out into a physical persecution where this fellow Antipas was, uh, was martyred for the faith. Antipas, we don't know anything about him other than that this happened to him, that he was a faithful martyr for Christ in Pergamum. But in spite of the opposition and persecution that they faced, these Christians held fast Jesus' name and did not deny his faith. Now in the city of Pergamum, as we said before, there were many names held in high esteem. Names like Caesar and Zeus and Athena. These names were on the lips of many in the city as they came to worship these false gods. But Jesus' name was not esteemed nor honored there by the majority. He was not confessed except by these faithful few Christians in the city and they did so even in the face of fierce opposition. They did not deny the faith. They held fast to their belief in Jesus. They clung to Jesus through all this that they faced. They held fast to the only name under heaven by which people can be saved. They didn't look to these other gods. They didn't confess faith in Caesar. They kept their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the vital church, the vital Christian is one who understands what Peter said to the, to the religious council when he, had, uh, when he and John were, were asked to come and appear before the... Well, they were taken and made to appear before the council, and they asked him, after they'd healed the man at the temple, by what power or by what name do you do this? And Peter replied strongly, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. See, he held fast to Christ's name, and he confessed the faith that he had in Jesus. And he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when a church stops holding fast to the name of Christ and faith in Christ, then that body has ceased to be a church. And you see that, sadly, all throughout our land and throughout the world today. I've given you a quote by James Bannerman. He wrote a, a two-volume work called The Church of Christ. And he sums up the purpose of the church in this way. He says, To hold and to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ is the only sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church because this is the one thing for the sake of which a church of Christ has been instituted on earth. The purpose for the church to be here is to proclaim Christ, to proclaim that name, to proclaim the only one under heaven who can save sinful people like we are. And that's why we are here. That's what, why we exist as a church. And that should, that should guide the purpose behind everything that we do. If we're not proclaiming Christ or trying to proclaim Christ through the things that we're doing as a church, then we're, we're wasting our time. That's what it's all about, proclaiming Jesus Christ. That's what we should be doing. Now, point number three is what we should not be doing. And that is 
The vital church does not compromise with the world. Jesus points out that he has a few things against the church in Pergamum. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now he's referring to uh, an episode that's uh, recorded for us in Numbers 22, 23, 24, in that section of the book of of Numbers. And uh, in uh, in that episode, Balak, who is the king of Moab, he, he gets Balaam the prophet. He, he wants to hire Balaam the prophet to place a curse on the Israelites as they're passing by and trying to go through the Moabite, Moabite land. So Balak uh, summons Balaam the prophet to come and curse the tribes of Israel as they were about to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. But Balaam found that every time that he went to curse Israel, he blessed them instead. The word he got from God was a, a word of blessing. And that really miffed Balak, king of the Moabites. And in the end, what happened was that Balaam devised another plan. He suggested that Moabite girls should seduce the Israelite men by inviting them to take part in their, their idolatrous feasts, their, their idol worship. And that involved sexual immorality. Now, there were a few people, and, and this translates to what he's talking about in Pergamum, there were people in the church in Pergamum who were repeating an age-old error that exists even today. That is, <clears throat> that, that the liberty we know in our relationship with God gives us a license to sin. God will be gracious to us no matter what. I'm forgiven you know, God has forgiven me and, 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 and he will forgive me so I can go and I can take part in this sin. That was being proclaimed to the church in Pergamum and they were tolerating that. And that was what Jesus was condemning them for. Now Pergamum, like Biloxi, like wherever you're from, no matter where you're from, is filled with all kinds of delightful, fun temptations that appeal to fleshly desires. You don't even have to, to, to be in any particular place with the internet these days and you can have all kinds of temptations before you that no one will see but yourself and God. So it was a constant pressure on the church here in Pergamum to give in to the pressure of the culture all around them. And some were seeking to justify doing that. Now we face obviously the same temptations today. We're constantly bombarded with temptations to compromise with the world, our flesh, and the devil. But Jesus has saved us for a purpose, and we need to remind ourselves of that, and that purpose is to make us holy, to make us completely devoted to him. He bought us with a price if we are believers. Ephesians 5 describes Christ's love for the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Sinclair Ferguson says, If such a Savior suffered such a death in order to make us holy, how else should we respond but by giving ourselves entirely to him? It's the same thing that we sing and when I, uh, when I survey the wondrous cross. Love 
so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Now what does holiness mean? Holiness means being reserved for God. If something was holy, it was set apart for a special use, for God's use. And if you're a Christian, you belong to God. You're set apart for His use, to do what He wants you to do. You no longer call the shots in your life. God is the one who is over you. He is the Lord. He has graciously given us His Word to guide our faith and our practice. Now the reason Christianity is losing influence in our world today is because Christians who are called to be ambassadors for Christ are not representing Him well. See, we we must know the truth of the Word and we must live the truth of the Word. And those who do not are not vital Christians, if they're Christians at all. So Jesus says, repent. Verse 16. Repentance is the order of the day. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And this is a reference to judgment. The sword of his mouth is the truth. And when Jesus comes in judgment, the truth will be known. It will be laid bare before God. There will be no more fooling ourselves or others before a holy God who comes to us with the sword of our mouth. So so repentance is called for. We need to remember that Jesus did not die to free us to sin. He died to free us from sin. The guilt of sin, the penalty of sin. He died to free us from the bondage to sin. And from the power sin has over us. And one day he will free us from the very presence of sin. We like the part about Jesus dying and freeing us from the penalty of sin. We all embrace that. We, we love the fact that Jesus died to free us from the guilt of sin. But what we are not sometimes so excited about is that Jesus has freed us from the very power of sin. He has freed us from bondage to sin We don't have to sin anymore. We will, because we're not perfect, and we won't be perfect until he comes again. But he has died to free us from bondage to sin. He's not giving us license to go back to it. He's, He's trying to free you from that. And that's what the process of sanctification is. If we continuously are compromising with the world, then we're fighting against what Jesus is trying to do in our lives. But how often we, we would rather go and, and ha, ha, partake of our pet temptations, our pet sins, and forget that we're in a spiritual battle with, with the forces of evil. And he's trying to destroy us. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus has come to give you life, a life free from sin. That's where true joy lies, true peace, true comfort, all all that Christ has promised to us, but we think sin is better than Jesus. Well, there and there's this final encouragement to help us hold fast to Jesus and his will for our lives. The vital church keeps the future hope in view. You know, the church in Pergamum lived in a difficult environment, and they were holding fast, but they, they were starting to compromise there. And Jesus graciously calls them to repent. He's doing the same for us. He, he constantly says, if we repent, confess our sins to him, he will forgive us and cleanse us and renew us. And he gives us further 
encouragement in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a bit mysterious here what, uh, what some of these things mean, but there are some spiritual blessings for the one who overcomes. The, the most difficult thing to understand is what is meant by a white stone. One commentator listed seven different uh, theories that people have about the meaning of this white stone. One of them is that it's a symbol of acquittal. When there was a trial and the jurors would... Uh, cast their vote for, for letting the person be declared righteous, that they're, they're not condemned, they're, they're innocent, that they would turn in a white stone. And they would get this white stone. It would be, my vote would be to, you know, to, to, to acquit the person. So that's a possibility, what the white stone means. Christ has uh, acquitted us through his, his death. Uh, sometimes uh, winners in athletic contests would be given a white stone, a, a, a medal, if you will, for, for winning. And this is, of course, consistent with what's being said here, a conqueror, the one who achieves and, and gets to the end. But whatever it means, it's a blessing. Jesus is giving a gift to us of some sort. It has a new name written on this stone. And that symbolizes a, a new character. You know, we... Our names don't mean as much as they, they did in th- these days. You know, we give our children names and maybe we use a family name and to, to honor someone uh, from our past, uh, maybe a grandparent or, or parent and, uh, or a favorite uncle or aunt or a famous person in history. But names in the Bible and in that era were more reflective of character. So people were renamed. You know, you think of Paul, Saul, uh, Abram, uh, Abraham. They were given a new name to reflect a, a different promise, a different character, a different aspect of their lives. So when Jesus says that he'll give us a new name, he's giving us a new character. He's giving us a, a holy, renewed character. And then he says that he will give some of the hidden manna. And of course, this is a reference to the Exodus where God provided the the manna in the wilderness for the people uh, as they traveled to the promised land. In John chapter 6, we have this wonderful promise of the future, what Jesus is is for us now and and will be for us in the future. Jesus answered these people who had been following him since he fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. They were looking for a free meal. And Jesus answered them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, we must come to Jesus and receive him. The the bread of heaven, the bread of life. That's where true satisfaction comes. Not in indulging in the compromise with the world, but holding fast to him, cling to him, who is the only source of true satisfaction. And one day we will be with him forever. He has made us all these wonderful promises to us here for the one who overcomes, who hold fast to him, hold fast to faith. May God give us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that everyone here today would cling to you, not compromise with the world, but Lord, make us a vital church that loves you and proclaims you and exhibits your character in our lives character of holiness and and all those wonderful characteristics of you the perfect the perfect god man who came to to earth to die for sinners such as we are to free us from sin not so that we might indulge in sin lord help us to to stand strong in the day of temptation we pray this in jesus name amen